Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and today's date is September 2nd, 2020, and I have the third uh, part of, let me get the right name here, At the Mountains of Madness. The full story, so far as deciphered, will shortly appear in an official bulletin of Miskatonic University. Here I shall sketch only the salient highlights in a formless rambling way. Myth or otherwise, the sculptures told of the coming of those star-headed things to the nascent lifeless Earth out of cosmic space. Their coming, and the coming of many other alien entities such as at certain times embark upon spatial pioneering. They seemed able to traverse the interstellar ether on their vast membranous wings, thus oddly confirming some curious hill folklore long ago told me by an antiquarian colleague. They had lived under the sea a good deal, building fantastic cities and fighting terrific battles with nameless adversaries by means of intricate devices, employing unknown principles of energy. Evidently, their scientific and mechanical knowledge far surpassed man's today though they made use of its more widespread and elaborate forms only when obliged to. Some of the sculptures suggested that they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets, but had receded upon finding its effects emotionally unsatisfying. Their preternatural toughness of organization and simplicity of natural want made them peculiarly able to live on a high plane without the more specialized fruits of artificial manufacture and even without garments except for occasional protection against the elements. It was under the sea at first for food and later for other purposes that they first created earth life, using available substances according to long-known methods. The more elaborate experiments came after the annihilation of various cosmic enemies. They had done the same thing on other planets, having manufactured not only necessary foods, but certain multicellular protoplasmic masses capable of molding their tissues into all sorts of temporary organs under hypnotic influence and thereby forming ideal slaves to perform the heavy work of the community. These viscous masses were without doubt what Abdul Alhazred whispered as the Shoggoths in his frightful Necronomicon. Though even that mad Arab had not hinted that any existed on Earth, except in the dreams of those who had chewed a certain alkaloidal herb. When the star-headed old ones on this planet had synthesized their simple food forms and bred a good supply of Shoggoths, they allowed other cell groups to develop into other forms of animal and vegetable life for sundry purposes, extirpating any whose presence became troublesome. When the aid of the Shoggoths, whose expansions could be made to lift prodigious weights, the small low cities under the sea grew to vast and imposing labyrinths of stone not unlike those which later rose on land. Indeed, the highly adaptable old ones had lived much on land in other parts of the universe, and probably retained many traditions of land construction. As we studied the architecture of all these sculptural Paleogean cities, including that whose eon-dead corridors we were even then traversing, we were impressed by a curious coincidence which we have not yet tried to explain, even to ourselves. The tops of the buildings, which in the actual city around us had, of course, been weathered into shapeless ruins ages ago, were clearly displayed in the bas-reliefs and showed vast clusters of needle-like spires, delicate finials on certain cone and pyramid apexes, and tiers of thin, 
horizontal scalloped discs, capping cylindrical shafts. This was exactly what we had seen in that monstrous and portentous mirage, cast by a dead city when such skyline features had been absent for thousands and tens of thousands of years, which loomed on our ignorant eyes across the unfathomed mountains of madness as we first approached poor Lake's ill-fated camp. Of the life of the old ones, both under the sea and after part of them migrated to land, volumes could be written. Those in shallow water had continued the fullest use of the eyes at the ends of their five main head tentacles, and had practiced the arts of sculpture and of writing in quite the usual way, the writing accomplished with a stylus on waterproof waxen surfaces. Those lower down in the ocean depths, though they used a curious phosphorescent organism to furnish light, pieced out their vision with obscure special senses operating through the prismatic cilia on their heads. Senses which rendered all the old ones partly independent of light in emergencies. Their forms of sculpture and writing had changed curiously during the descent, embodying certain apparently chemical coating processes, probably to secure phosphorescence, which the Basra leaves could not make clear to us. The beings moved in the sea partly by swimming, using the lateral crinoid arms, and partly by wriggling with the lower tier of tentacles containing the pseudo-feet. Occasionally they accomplished long swoops with the auxiliary use of two or more sets of their fan-like folding wings. On land they locally used the pseudo-feet, but now and then flew to great heights or over long distances with their wings. The many slender tentacles into which the crinoid arms branched were infinitely delicate, flexible, strong and accurate in muscular nervous coordination, ensuring the utmost skill and dexterity in all artistic and other manual operations. The toughness of the things was almost incredible. Even the terrific pressures of the deepest sea bottoms appeared powerless to harm them. Very few seemed to die at all except by violence, and their burial places were very limited. The fact that they covered their vertically inhumed dead with five-pointed inscribed mounds set up thoughts in Danforth and me, which made a fresh pause and recuperation necessary after the sculptures revealed it. The beings multiplied by means of spores, like vegetable pteridophytes, as Lake had suspected, but owing to their prodigious toughness and longevity, and consequent lack of replacement needs, they did not encourage the large-scale development of new prothalli, except when they had new regions to colonize. The young matured swiftly, and received an education evidently beyond any standard we can imagine. The prevailing intellectual and aesthetic life was highly evolved, and produced a tenaciously enduring set of customs and institutions, which I shall describe more fully in my coming monograph. These varied slightly according to sea or land residents, but had the same foundations and essentials. Though able, like vegetables, to derive nourishment from inorganic substances, they vastly preferred organic and especially animal food. They ate uncooked marine life under the sea, but cooked their viands on land. They hunted game and raised meat herds, slaughtering with sharp weapons whose odd marks on certain fossil bones our expedition had noted. They resisted all ordinary temperatures marvelously and in their natural state could live in water down to freezing. When the great chill of the Pleistocene drew on, however, nearly a million years ago, the land dwellers had to resort to special measures, including artificial heating, until at last the deadly cold appears to have driven them back into the sea. For their prehistoric flights through cosmic space, legend said, they had absorbed certain chemicals and become almost independent of eating, breathing, or heat conditions. 
but by the time of the great cold, they had lost track of the method. In any case, they could not have prolonged the artificial state indefinitely without harm. Being non-pairing and semi-vegetable in structure, the old ones had no biological basis for the family phase of mammal life, but seemed to organize large households on the principles of comfortable space utility and, as we deduced from the pictured occupations and diversions of co-dwellers, congenial mental association. In furnishing their homes, they kept everything in the center of the huge rooms, leaving all the wall spaces free for decorative treatment. Lighting, in the case of land inhabitants, was accomplished by a device probably electrochemical in nature. Both on land and underwater, they used curious tables, chairs, and couches like cylindrical frames, for they rested and slept upright with folded-down tentacles and racks for the hinged sets of dotted surfaces forming their books. Government was evidently complex and probably socialistic, though no certainties in this regard could be deduced from the sculptures we saw. There was extensive commerce, both local and between different cities. Certain small flat counters, five-pointed and inscribed, serving as money. Probably the smaller of the various greenish soapstones found by our expedition were pieces of such currency. Though the culture was mainly urban, some agriculture and much stock-raising existed. Mining and a limited amount of manufacturing were also practiced. Travel was very frequent but permanent migration seemed relatively rare except for the vast colonizing movements by which the race expanded. For personal locomotion, no external aid was used, since in land, air, and water movement alike, the old ones seemed to possess excessively vast capacities for speed. Loads, however, were drawn by beasts of burden, shoggoths under the sea, and a curious variety of primitive vertebrates in the later years of land existence. These vertebrates, as well as an infinity of other life forms, animal and vegetable, marine, terrestrial, and aerial, were the products of unguided evolution acting on life cells made by the old ones but escaping beyond their radius of attention. They had been suffered to develop unchecked because they had not come in conflict with the dominant beings. Bothersome forms, of course, were mechanically exterminated. It interested us to see in some of the very last and most decadent sculptures a shambling primitive mammal, used sometimes for food, and sometimes as an amusing buffoon by land-dwellers, whose vaguely simian and human foreshadowings were unmistakable. In the building of land cities, the huge stone blocks of the high towers were generally lifted by vast winged pterodactyls, of a species heretofore unknown to paleontology. The persistence with which the old ones survived various geologic changes and convulsions of the Earth's crust was little short of miraculous. Though few or none of their first cities seemed to have remained beyond the Archean Age, there was no interruption in their civilization or in the transmission of their records. Their original place of advent to the planet was the Antarctic Ocean, and it is likely that they came not long after the matter forming the moon was wrenched from the neighboring South Pacific. According to one of the sculptured maps, the whole globe was then underwater with stone cities scattered farther and farther from the Antarctic as eons passed. Another map shows a vast bulk of dry land around the South Pole, where it is evident that some of the beings made experimental settlements, though their main centers were transferred to the nearest sea bottom. Later maps, which display this landmass as cracking and drifting, and sending certain detached parts northward, uphold in a striking way the theories of continental drift lately advanced by Taylor, Wegner, and Jolie. With the upheaval of a new land in the South Pacific, tremendous events began. 
Some of the marine cities were hopelessly shattered, yet that was not the worst misfortune. Another race, a land race of beings shaped like octopi and probably corresponding to the fabulous pre-human spawn of Cthulhu, soon began filtering down from cosmic infinity and precipitated a monstrous war, which for a time drove the old ones wholly back to the sea. A colossal blow in view of the increasing land settlements. Later peace was made, and the new lands were given to the Cthulhu spawn whilst the old ones held the sea and the older lands. New land cities were founded, the greatest of them in the Antarctic, for this region of first arrival was sacred. From then on, as before, the Antarctic remained the center of the Old One's civilization, and all the discoverable cities built there by the Cthulhu spawn were blotted out. Then suddenly the lands of the Pacific sank again, taking with them the frightful stone city of Rydlia and all the cosmic octopi so that the old ones were again supreme on the planet except for one shadowy fear about which they did not like to speak. At a rather later age, their cities dotted all the land and water areas of the globe, hence the recommendation in my coming monograph that some archaeologists make systematic borings with Pabodi's type of apparatus in certain widely separated regions. The steady trend down the ages was from water to land, a movement encouraged by the rise of new land masses, though the ocean was never wholly deserted. Another cause of the landward movement was the new difficulty in breeding and managing shoggoths upon which successful sea life depended. With the march of time, as the sculpture sadly confessed, the art of creating new life from inorganic matter had been lost, so that the old ones had to depend on the molding of forms already in existence. On land the great reptiles proved highly tractable, but the Shoggoths of the sea, reproducing by fission and requiring a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence, presented for a time a formidable problem. They had always been controlled through the hypnotic suggestion of the old ones, and had modeled their tough plasticity into various useful temporary limbs and organs. But now their self-modeling powers were sometimes exercised independently, and in various imitative forms implanted by past suggestion. They had, it seems, developed a semi-stable brain whose separate and occasionally stubborn volition echoed the will of the old ones without always obeying it. Sculptured images of these Shoggoths filled Danforth and me with horror and loathing. They were normally shapeless entities composed of a viscous jelly, which looked like an agglutination of bubbles, and each averaged about 15 feet in diameter when a sphere. They had, however, a constantly shifting shape and volume, throwing out temporary developments or forming apparent organs of sight, hearing, and speech in imitation of their masters, either spontaneously or according to suggestion. They seem to have become peculiarly intractable towards the middle of the Permian Age, perhaps 150 million years ago, when a veritable war of resubjugation was waged upon them by the marine old ones. Pictures of this war, and of the headless, slime-coated fashion in which the Shoggoths typically left their slain victims, held a marvelously fearsome quality despite the intervening abyss of untold ages. The Old Ones had used curious weapons of molecular disturbance against the rebel entities, and in the end had achieved a complete victory. Thereafter the sculptures showed a period in which Shoggoths were tamed and broken by armed old ones as the wild horses of the American West were tamed by cowboys. Though during the rebellion the Shoggoths had shown an ability to live out of water, this transition was not encouraged, since the usefulness on land would hardly have been commensurate with the trouble of their management. 
During the Jurassic Age, the Old Ones met fresh adversity, in the form of a new invasion from outer space. This time by half-fungus, half-crustacean creatures from a planet identifiable as the remote and recently discovered Pluto. Creatures undoubtedly the same as those figuring in certain whispered hill legends of the North, and remembered in the Himalayas as the Migo, or abominable snowmen. To fight these beings, the Old Ones attempted, for the first time since their terrene advent, to sally forth again, into the planetary ether. But despite all traditional preparations found it no longer possible to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Whatever the old secret of interstellar travel had been, it was now definitely lost to the race. In the end, the Migo drove the Old Ones out of all the northern lands, though they were powerless to disturb those in the sea. Little by little, the slow retreat of the Elder Race to their original Antarctic habitat was beginning. It was curious to note from the pictured battles that both the Cthulhu spawn and the Migo seem to have been composed of matter more widely different from that which we know than was the substance of the Old Ones. They were able to undergo transformations and reintegrations impossible for their adversaries, and seem therefore to have originally come from even remoter gulfs of cosmic space. The Old Ones, but for their abnormal toughness and peculiar vital properties, were strictly material, and must have had their absolute origin within the known space-time continuum, whereas the first sources of the other beings can only be guessed at with bated breath. All this, of course, assuming that the non-terrestrial linkages and the anomalies ascribed to the invading foes are not pure mythology. Conceivably, the Old Ones might have invented a cosmic framework to account for their occasional defeats, since historical interest and pride obviously formed their chief psychological element. It is significant that their annals failed to mention many advanced and potent races of beings whose mighty cultures and towering cities figure persistently in certain obscure legends. The changing state of the world through long geologic ages appeared with startling vividness in many of the sculptured maps and scenes. In certain cases existing science will require revision, while in other cases its bold deductions are magnificently confirmed. As I have said, the hypothesis of Taylor, Wegner, and Jolie that all the continents are fragments of an original Antarctic landmass which cracked from centrifugal force and drifted apart over a technically viscous lower surface, an hypothesis suggested by such things as the complementary outlines of Africa and South America, and the way the great mountain chains are rolled and shoved up, receives striking support from this uncanny source. Maps evidently showing the Carboniferous world of an hundred million or more years ago displayed significant rifts and chasms destined later to separate Africa from the once continuous realms of Europe, then the Volusia of hellish primal legend, Asia, the Americas, and the Antarctic continent. Other charts, and most significantly one in connection with the founding 50 million years ago of the vast dead city around us, showed all the present continents well differentiated, and in the latest discoverable specimen, dating perhaps from the Pliocene age, the approximate world of today appeared quite clearly, despite the linkage of Alaska with Siberia, of North America with Europe through Greenland, and of South America with the Antarctic continent through Gramland. In the Carboniferous map, the whole globe, ocean floor and rift land mass alike, bore symbols of the Old Ones' vast stone cities, but in the later charts the gradual recession toward the Antarctic became very plain. The final Pliocene specimen showed no land cities except on the Antarctic continent and the tip of South America nor any ocean cities north of the 50th parallel of south latitude, 
Knowledge and interest in the northern world, save for a study of coastlines probably made during long exploration flights on those fan-like membranous wings, had evidently declined to zero among the old ones. Destruction of cities through the upthrust of mountains, the centrifugal rending of continents, the seismic convulsions of land or sea bottom, and other natural causes was a matter of common record, and it was curious to observe how fewer and fewer replacements were made as the ages wore on. The vast dead megalopolis that yawned around us seemed to be the last general center of the race, built early in the Cretaceous age after a titanic earth buckling had obliterated a still vaster predecessor not far distant. It appeared that this general region was the most sacred spot of all, where reputedly the first old ones had settled on a primal sea bottom. In the new city, many of whose features we could recognize in the sculptures, but which stretched fully an hundred miles along the mountain range in each direction beyond the farthest limits of our aerial survey, there were reputed to be preserved certain sacred stones forming part of the first sea-bottom city, which were thrust up to light after long epochs in the course of the general crumpling of strata. 8. Naturally, Danforth and I studied with a special interest and a peculiarly personal sense of awe everything pertaining to the immediate district in which we were. Of this local material there was naturally a vast abundance, and on the tangled ground level of the city, we were lucky enough to find a house of very late date whose walls, though somewhat damaged by a neighboring rift, contained sculptures of a decadent workmanship carrying the story of the region much beyond the period of the Pliocene map whence we derived our last general glimpse of the pre-human world. This was the last place we examined in detail, since what we found there gave us a fresh, immediate objective. Certainly, we were in one of the strangest, weirdest, and most terrible of all the corners of Earth's globe. Of all existing lands, it was infinitely the most ancient, and the conviction grew upon us that this hideous upland must indeed be the fabled nightmare plateau of Leng, which even the mad author of the Necronomicon was reluctant to discuss. The great mountain chain was tremendously long, starting as a low range at Luitpold Land, on the east coast of Weddell Sea, and virtually crossing the entire continent. The really high part stretched in a mighty arc from about latitude 82 degrees east, longitude 60 degrees, to latitude 70 degrees east, longitude 115 degrees, with its concave side toward our camp, and its seaward end in the region of that long, ice-locked coast whose hills were glimpsed by Wilkes and Mawson at the Antarctic Circle. Yet, even more monstrous exaggerations of nature seemed disturbingly close at hand. I have said that these peaks are higher than the Himalayas, but the sculptures forbid me to say that they are Earth's highest. That grim honor is beyond doubt reserved for something which half the sculptures hesitated to record at all, whilst others approached it with obvious repugnance and trepidation. It seems that there was one part of the ancient land, the first part that ever rose from the waters after the earth had flung off the moon and the old ones had seeped down from the stars, which had come to be shunned as vaguely and namelessly evil. Cities built there had crumbled before their time and had been found suddenly deserted. Then, when the first great earth buckling had convulsed the region in the Comanchean Age, a frightful line of peaks had shot suddenly up amidst the most appalling din and chaos, and Earth had received her loftiest and most terrible mountains. If the scale of the carvings was correct, 
These abhorred things must have been much over 40,000 feet high, radically vaster than even the shocking mountains of madness we had crossed. They extended it appeared from about latitude 77 degrees east longitude 70 degrees to latitude 70 degrees east longitude 100 degrees, less than 300 miles away from the dead city so that we would have spied their dreaded summits in the dim western distance had it not been for that vague opalescent haze. Their northern end must likewise be visible from the long Antarctic Circle coastline at Queen Mary Land. Some of the old ones in the decadent days had made strange prayers to those mountains, but none ever went near them or dared to guess what lay beyond. No human eye had ever seen them, and as I studied the emotions conveyed in the carvings I prayed that none ever might. There are protecting hills along the coast behind them, Queen Mary and Kaiser Wilhelm lands, and I thank heaven no one has been able to land and climb those hills. I am not as skeptical about old tales and fears as I used to be, and I do not laugh now at the pre-human sculptor's notion that lightning paused meaningfully now and then at each of the brooding crests, and that an unexplained glow shone from one of those terrible pinnacles all through the long polar night. There may be a very real and very monstrous meaning in the old pnecotic whispers about Kadath in the cold waste, but the terrain close at hand was hardly less strange, even if less namelessly accursed. Soon after the founding of the city, the great mountain range became the seat of the principal temples, and many carvings showed what grotesque and fantastic towers had pierced the sky where now we saw only the curiously clinging cubes and ramparts. In the course of ages the caves had appeared, and had been shaped into adjuncts of the temples. With the advance of still later epochs all the limestone veins of the region were hollowed out by groundwaters so that the mountains, the foothills, and the plains below them were a veritable network of connected caverns and galleries. Many graphic sculptures told of explorations deep underground, and of the final discovery of the Stygian sunless sea that lurked at Earth's bowels. This vast, nighted gulf had undoubtedly been worn by the great river, which flowed down from the nameless and horrible westward mountains, and which had formerly turned at the base of the Old One's range, and flowed beside that chain into the Indian Ocean between Bud and Tottenlands on Wilkes coastline. Little by little it had eaten away the limestone hill base at its turning till at last its sapping currents reached the caverns of the groundwaters and joined with them in digging a deeper abyss. Finally, its whole bulk emptied into the hollow hills and left the old bed toward the ocean dry. Much of the later city, as we now found it, had been built over that former bed. The old ones, understanding what had happened, and exercising their always keen artistic sense, had carved into ornate pylons those headlands of the foothills where the great stream began its descent into eternal darkness. This river, once crossed by scores of noble stone bridges, was plainly the one whose extinct course we had seen in our aeroplane survey. Its position in different carvings of the city helped us to orient ourselves to the scene as it had been at various stages of the region's age-long, eon-dead history, so that we were able to sketch a hasty but careful map of the salient features, squares, important buildings, and the like, for guidance in further explorations. We could soon reconstruct in fancy the whole stupendous thing as it was a million or ten million or fifty million years ago, 
for the sculptures told us exactly what the buildings and mountains and squares and suburbs and landscape setting and luxuriant tertiary vegetation had looked like. It must have had a marvelous and mystic beauty, and as I thought of it I almost forgot the clammy sense of sinister oppression with which the city's inhuman age and massiveness and deadness and remoteness and glacial twilight had choked and weighed on my spirit. Yet according to certain carvings the denizens of that city had themselves known the clutch of oppressive terror. For there was a somber and recurrent type of scene in which the old ones were shown in the act of recoiling affrightedly from some object, never allowed to appear in the design, found in the great river and indicated as having been washed down through waving, vine-draped cycad forests from those horrible westward mountains. It was only in the one late-built house with the decadent carvings that we obtained any foreshadowing of the final calamity leading to the city's desertion. Undoubtedly there must have been many sculptures of the same age elsewhere, even allowing for the slackened energies and aspirations of a stressful and uncertain period. Indeed, very certain evidence of the existence of others came to us shortly afterward. But this was the first and only set we directly encountered. We meant to look farther later on. But as I have said, immediate conditions dictated another present objective. There would, though, have been a limit. For after all hope of a long future occupancy of the place had perished among the old ones, there could not but have been a complete cessation of mural decoration. The ultimate blow, of course, was the coming of the great cold, which once held most of the earth in thrall, and which has never departed from the ill-fated poles. The great cold that, at the world's other extremity, put an end to the fabled lands of Lomar and Hyperborea. Just when this tendency began in the Antarctic, it would be hard to say in terms of exact years. Nowadays, we set the beginning of the general glacial periods at a distance of about 500,000 years from the present. But at the poles, the terrible scourge must have commenced much earlier. All quantitative estimates are partly guesswork, but it is quite likely that the decadent sculptures were made considerably less than a million years ago, and that the actual desertion of the city was complete long before the conventional opening of the Pleistocene, 500,000 years ago, as reckoned in terms of the Earth's whole surface. In the decadent sculptures, there were signs of thinner vegetation everywhere, and of a decreased country life on the part of the old ones. Heating devices were shown in the houses, and winter travelers were represented as muffled in protective fabrics. Then we saw a series of cartouches, the continuous band arrangement being frequently interrupted in these late carvings, depicting a constantly growing migration to the nearest refuges of greater warmth, some fleeing to cities under the sea off the faraway coast, and some clambering down through networks of limestone caverns in the hollow hills to the neighboring black abyss of subterranean waters. In the end, it seems to have been the neighboring abyss which received the greatest colonization. This was partly due, no doubt, to the traditional sacredness of this special region, but may have been more conclusively determined by the opportunities it gave for continuing the use of the great temples on the honeycombed mountains, and for retaining the vast land city as a place of summer residence and base of communication with various mines. The linkage of old and new abodes was made more effective by means of several gradings and improvements along the connecting routes including the chiseling of numerous direct tunnels from the ancient metropolis to the black abyss. Sharply down-pointing tunnels whose mouths we carefully drew, according to our most thoughtful estimates, on the map we were compiling. 
It was obvious that at least two of these tunnels lay within a reasonable exploring distance of where we were, both being on the mountainward edge of the city, one less than a quarter mile toward the ancient river course, and the other perhaps twice that distance in the opposite direction. The abyss, it seems, had shelving shores of dry land at certain places, but the old ones built their new city underwater, no doubt because of its greater certainty of uniform warmth. The depth of the hidden sea appears to have been very great, so that the Earth's internal heat could ensure its habitability for an indefinite period. The beings seem to have had no trouble in adapting themselves to part-time and eventually, of course, whole-time residence underwater, since they had never allowed their gill systems to atrophy. There were many sculptures which showed how they had always frequently visited their submarine kinsfolk elsewhere, and how they had habitually bathed on the deep bottom of their great river. The darkness of inner earth could likewise have been no deterrent to a race accustomed to long Antarctic nights. Decadent though their style undoubtedly was, these latest carvings had a truly epic quality where they told of the building of the new city in the cavern sea. The old ones had gone about it scientifically, quarrying insoluble rocks from the heart of the honeycombed mountains, and employing expert workers from the nearest submarine city to perform the construction according to the best methods. These workers brought with them all that was necessary to establish the new venture. Shoggoth tissue from which to breed stone lifters, and subsequent beasts of burden for the cavern city, and other protoplasmic matter to mold into phosphorescent organisms for lighting purposes. At last, a mighty metropolis rose on the bottom of that Stygian sea, its architecture much like that of the city above and its workmanship displaying relatively little decadence because of the precise mathematical element inherent in building operations. The newly bred Shoggoths grew to enormous size and singular intelligence and were represented as taking and executing orders with marvelous quickness. They seemed to converse with the old ones by mimicking their voices, a sort of musical piping over a wide range, if poor Lake's dissection had indicated aright and to work more from spoken commands than from hypnotic suggestions as in earlier times. They were, however, kept in admirable control. The phosphorescent organisms supplied light with vast effectiveness, and doubtless atoned for the loss of the familiar polar auroras of the outer world night. Art and decoration were pursued, though, of course, with a certain decadence, the old ones seemed to realize this falling off themselves, and in many cases anticipated the policy of Constantine the Great by transplanting especially fine blocks of ancient carving from their land city, just as the emperor in a similar age of decline stripped Greece and Asia of their finest art to give his new Byzantine capital greater splendors than its own people could create. That the transfer of sculptured blocks had not been more extensive was doubtless owing to the fact that the land city was not at first wholly abandoned. By the time total abandonment did occur, and it surely must have occurred before the polar Pleistocene was far advanced, the old ones had perhaps become satisfied with their decadent art, or had ceased to recognize the superior merit of the older carvings. At any rate, the eon-silent ruins around us had certainly undergone no wholesale sculptural denudation, though all the best separate statues, like other movables, had been taken away. The decadent cartouches and dados telling this story were, as I have said, the latest we could find in our limited search. They left us with a picture of the old ones shuttling back and forth betwixt the land city in summer and the sea cavern city in winter, and sometimes trading with sea-bottom cities off the Antarctic coast, 
By this time the ultimate doom of the land city must have been recognized, for the sculptures showed many signs of the cold's malign encroachments. Vegetation was declining, and the terrible snows of the winter no longer melted completely even in midsummer. The Saurian livestock were nearly all dead, and the mammals were standing at none too well. To keep on with the work of the upper world, it had become necessary to adapt some of the amorphous and curiously cold-resistant Shoggoths to land life, a thing the old ones had formerly been reluctant to do. The great river was now lifeless, and the upper sea had lost most of its denizens except the seals and whales. All the birds had flown away save only the great grotesque penguins. What had happened afterward, we could only guess. How long had the new sea cavern city survived? Was it still down there? A stony corpse in eternal blackness? Had the subterranean waters frozen at last? To what fate had the ocean-bottomed cities of the outer world been delivered? Had any of the old ones shifted north ahead of the creeping ice cap? Existing geology shows no trace of their presence. Had the frightful Migo been still a menace in the outer land world of the north? Could one be sure of what might or might not linger even to this day in the lightless and unplumbed abysses of Earth's deepest waters? Those things had seemingly been able to withstand any amount of pressure, and men of the sea have fished up curious objects at times. And has the killer whale theory really explained the savage and mysterious scars on Antarctic seals noticed a generation ago by Borchgrovink? The specimens found by Poor Lake did not enter into these guesses, for their geologic setting proved them to have lived at what must have been a very early date in the land city's history. They were, according to their location, certainly not less than 30 million years old, and we reflected that in their day, the sea cavern city and indeed the cavern itself, had no existence. They would have remembered an older scene, with lush tertiary vegetation everywhere, a younger land city of flourishing arts around them, and a great river sweeping northward along the base of the mighty mountains toward a faraway tropic ocean. And yet, we could not help thinking about these specimens, especially about the eight perfect ones that were missing from Lake's hideously ravaged camp. There was something abnormal about that whole business. The strange things we had tried so hard to lay to somebody's madness. Those frightful graves. The amount and nature of the missing material. Gedney. The unearthly toughness of those archaic monstrosities. And the queer vital freaks the sculptures now showed the race to have. Danforth and I had seen a good deal in the last few hours. And were prepared to believe and keep silent about many appalling and incredible secrets of primal nature. 9. I have said that our study of the decadent sculptures brought about a change in our immediate objective. This, of course, had to do with the chiseled avenues to the black inner world, of whose existence we had not known before, but which we were now eager to find and traverse. From the evident scale of the carvings, we deduced that a steeply descending walk of about a mile through either of the neighboring tunnels would bring us to the brink of the dizzy, sunless cliffs above the great abyss, down whose side adequate paths, improved by the old ones, led to the rocky shore of the hidden and nighted ocean. To behold this fabulous gulf in stark reality was a lure which seemed impossible of resistance once we knew of the thing. 
Yet we realized we must begin the quest at once if we expected to include it on our present flight. It was now 8 p.m., and we had not enough battery replacements to let our torches burn on forever. We had done so much of our studying and copying below the glacial level that our battery supply had had at least five hours of nearly continuous use. And despite the special dry cell formula, would obviously be good for only about four more. Though by keeping one torch unused, except for especially interesting or difficult places, we might manage to eke out a safe margin beyond that. It would not do to be without a light in these Cyclopean catacombs. Hence, in order to make the Abyss trip, we must give up all further mural deciphering. Of course, we intended to revisit the place for days and perhaps weeks of intensive study and photography, curiosity having long ago got the better of horror. But just now, we must hasten. Our supply of trailblazing paper was far from unlimited, and we were reluctant to sacrifice spare notebooks or sketching paper to augment it. But we did let one large notebook go. If worst came to worst, we could resort to rock chipping and, of course, it would be possible, even in case of really lost direction, to work up to full daylight by one channel or another if granted sufficient time for plentiful trial and error. So at last we set off eagerly in the indicated direction of the nearest tunnel. According to the carvings from which we have made our map, the desired tunnel mouth could not be much more than a quarter mile from where we stood the intervening space showing solid-looking buildings quite likely to be penetrable still at a subglacial level. The opening itself would be in the basement, on the angle nearest the foothills, of a vast five-pointed structure of evidently public and perhaps ceremonial nature, which we tried to identify from our aerial survey of the ruins. No such structure came to our minds as we recalled our flight, hence we concluded that its upper parts had been greatly damaged or that it had been totally shattered in an ice rift we had noticed. In the latter case, the tunnel would probably turn out to be choked, so that we would have to try the next nearest one, the one less than a mile to the north. The intervening river course prevented our trying any of the more southerly tunnels on this trip, and indeed, if both of the neighboring ones were choked, it was doubtful whether our batteries would warrant an attempt on the next northerly one, about a mile beyond our second choice. As we threaded our dim way through the labyrinth, with the aid of map and compass, traversing rooms and corridors in every stage of ruin or preservation, clambering up ramps, crossing upper floors and bridges and clambering down again, encountering choked doorways and piles of debris, hastening now and then along finely preserved and uncannily immaculate stretches, taking false leads and retracing our way, in such cases removing the blind paper trail we had left, and once in a while striking the bottom of an open shaft, through which daylight poured or trickled down. We were repeatedly tantalized by the sculptured walls along our route. Many must have told tales of immense historical importance, and only the prospect of later visits reconciled us to the need of passing them by. As it was, we slowed down once in a while and turned on our second torch. If we had no more films, we would certainly have paused briefly to photograph certain bas reliefs, but time-consuming hand-copying was clearly out of the question. I come now once more to a place where the temptation to hesitate, or to hint rather than state, is very strong. It is necessary, however, to reveal the rest in order to justify my course in discouraging further exploration. We had wormed our way very close to the computed site of the tunnel's mouth having crossed a second-story bridge to what seemed plainly the tip of a pointed wall, 
and ascended to a ruinous corridor especially rich and decadently elaborate and apparently ritualistic sculptures of late workmanship. When, about 8.30 p.m., Danforth's keen young nostrils gave us the first hint of something unusual. If we had had a dog with us, I suppose we would have been warned before. At first, we could not precisely say what was wrong with the formerly crystal pure air, but after a few seconds our memories reacted only too definitely. Let me try to state the thing without flinching. There was an odor, and that odor was vaguely, subtly, and unmistakably akin to what had nauseated us upon opening the insane grave of the horror poor Lake had dissected. Of course, the revelation was not as clearly cut at the time as it sounds now. There were several conceivable explanations, and we did a good deal of indecisive whispering. Most important of all, we did not retreat without further investigation, for having come this far, we were loath to be balked by anything short of certain disaster. Anyway, what we must have suspected was altogether too wild to believe. Such things did not happen in any normal world. It was probably sheer irrational instinct which made us dim our single torch, tempted no longer by the decadent and sinister sculptures that leered menacingly from the oppressive walls, and which softened our progress to a cautious tiptoeing and crawling over the increasingly littered floor and heaps of debris. Danforth's eyes, as well as nose, proved better than mine, for it was likewise he who first noticed the queer aspect of the debris after he had passed many half-choked arches leading to chambers and corridors on the ground level. It did not look quite as it ought after countless thousands of years of desertion, and when we cautiously turned on more light, we saw that a kind of swath seemed to have been lately tracked through it. The irregular nature of the litter precluded any definite marks, but in the smoother places there were suggestions of the dragging of heavy objects. Once we thought there was a hint of parallel tracks, as if of runners. This was what made us pause again. It was during that pause that we caught, simultaneously this time, the other odor ahead. Paradoxically, it was both a less frightful and a more frightful odor. Less frightful intrinsically, but infinitely appalling in this place under the known circumstances. Unless, of course, Gedney. For the odor was the plain and familiar one of common petrol, everyday gasoline. Our motivation after that is something I will leave to psychologists. We knew now that some terrible extension of the camp horrors must have crawled into this nighted burial place of the eons, hence could not doubt any longer the existence of nameless conditions, present or at least recent, just ahead. Yet in the end we did let sheer burning curiosity, or anxiety, or auto-hypnotism, or vague thoughts of responsibility toward Gidney, or what not, drive us on. Danforth whispered again of the print he thought he had seen at the alley turning in the ruins above, and of the faint musical piping, potentially of tremendous significance in the light of Lake's dissection report, despite its close resemblance to the cave-mouth echoes of the windy peaks which he thought he had shortly afterward heard from unknown depths below. I, in my turn, whispered of how the camp was left, of what had disappeared, and of how the madness of a lone survivor might have conceived the inconceivable, a wild trip across the monstrous mountains and a descent into the unknown primal masonry. 
But we could not convince each other, or even ourselves, of anything definite. We had turned off all light as we stood still, and vaguely noticed that a trace of deeply filtered upper day kept the blackness from being absolute. Having automatically begun to move ahead, we guided ourselves by occasional flashes from our torch. The disturbed debris formed an impression we could not shake off, and the smell of gasoline grew stronger. More and more ruin met our eyes and hampered our feet, until very soon, we saw that the forward way was about to cease. We had been all too correct in our pessimistic guesses about that rift glimpsed from the air. Our tunnel quest was a blind one, and we were not even going to be able to reach the basement out of which the abyssward aperture opened. The torch, flashing over the grotesquely carven walls of the blocked corridor in which we stood, showed several doorways in various states of obstruction and from one of them the gasoline odor, quite submerging that other hint of odor, came with a special distinctness. As we looked more steadily, we saw that beyond a doubt, there had been a slight and recent clearing away of debris from that particular opening. Whatever the lurking horror might be, we believed the direct avenue toward it was now plainly manifest. I do not think anyone will wonder that we waited an appreciable time before making any further motion. And yet, when we did venture inside that black arch, our first impression was one of anticlimax. For amidst the littered expanse of that sculptured crypt, a perfect cube with sides of about twenty feet, there remained no recent object of instantly discernible size, so that we looked instinctively, though in vain, for a farther doorway. In another moment, however, Danforth's sharp vision had described a place where the floor debris had been disturbed and we turned on both torches, full strength. Though what we saw in that light was actually simple and trifling, I am nonetheless reluctant to tell of it because of what it implied. It was a rough leveling of the debris, upon which several small objects lay carelessly scattered, and at one corner of which a considerable amount of gasoline must have been spilled lately enough to leave a strong odor even at this extreme super-plateau altitude. In other words, it could not be other than a sort of camp, a camp made by questing beings who, like us, had been turned back by the unexpectedly choked way to the abyss. Let me be plain. The scattered objects were, so far as substance was concerned, all from Lake's camp, and consisted of tin cans as queerly opened as those we had seen at that ravaged place. Many spent matches, Three illustrated books more or less curiously smudged. An empty ink bottle with its pictorial and instructional carton. A broken fountain pen. Some oddly snipped fragments of fur and tent cloth. A used electric battery with circular of directions. A folder that came with our type of tent heater. And a sprinkling of crumpled papers. It was all bad enough. Okay, this is getting tense. I've got one more, so hold tight. 